Hey everybody, it's Matt Zola from Fern Creek Christian Church. So glad you're able to tune in with us today. Hey, while you're on your phone, why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media at Fern Creek CC on Facebook and Instagram. And you can download the Fern Creek Christian Church app on your phone today. We hope this message encourages you to become a better follower of Jesus, to be a disciple that makes more disciples. So without further ado, here's the message. Have you heard every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why, no one quite knows the reason. It could be that his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve hating the Who's, staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at all the warm-lighted windows below in their town. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was busy now hanging a mistletoe wreath. And they're hanging their stockings, he snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas, it's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers nervously drumming. I must find some way to stop Christmas from coming. Well, happy December, church. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> uh, that's the best part of the whole sermon, trust me. Actually, it's right there. We're done, let's pray, we'll go home. Uh, Welcome, my name is Rich. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm the discipleship pastor here and uh, glad to be with you, church, as we continue to seek after Jesus together week after week. It's so important uh, to come together as the body and honor Jesus as king. Now, you probably are aware that in Dr. Seuss's book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, we're introduced to this bitter, green, cave-dwelling grumpy thing called the Grinch. And he has his heart sized too small, two sizes too small. And as he overhears and sees the Who's living in Whoville, he determines he's gonna steal Christmas away. He's gonna steal all their joy away by stealing every decoration and every toy. Well, today we're going to begin a four-week journey, a series to identify the Grinch emotions and philosophies that try to steal Christmas joy from us this season. And today what we're gonna be talking a little bit about is the Grinch of materialism. Have you noticed, have you seen it? Christmas has turned into one giant spending spree. We rush around in pursuit of finding all the right gifts on everyone's lists, like in the video bumper, and we tend to forget whose birthday it is that we're really celebrating. You might say we're distracted, distracted both this way and that, to find the right gifts, whether her dress or his hat. 
We must find the right things for the girls and the boys, be it clothing or games, electronics or the toys, all the while forgetting the babe in the manger, maybe nodding his direction to keep out of danger. But is it possible we've truly forgotten the Son, God incarnate, in flesh is begotten? Well, this morning we're going to be... uh, discussing a little bit a story that you're all familiar with it's found in the book of Matthew and we're going to go there in a little while Um, but I want to give it some background I want to see what we can learn from the journeys taken and the gifts that the wise men the magi bring the story we're about to read is filled with political intrigue and fear and ancient promise an amazing astronomical event symbolism and lots and lots of searching and so before we read it I want to try to provide some texture because typically when we read especially if you've grown up in church maybe you've noticed this when you read a story you already know it right it it, there are things that echo in your head and you go I know what that's all about I know what that's all about. And so I want to provide a little bit of texture today by talking, introducing uh, three people or groups of people to you, people in groups that you've already heard about, but I want to talk to you about them a little bit before we read the text. They provide a little bit of texture to the narrative. The first group is the Magi. Well, who are the Magi? Well, first I have to say, well, we don't really know. That is, the text doesn't actually tell us. All the scripture tells us is they're, they're people from the east, east of Judea. If you grab a Bible dictionary or maybe in your little study notes, it might say something like they were part of a priestly class both in the the kingdom of the Medes and the kingdom of the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire. They were advisors to the kings. They watched the stars. Some people called them astrologers, others astronomers, the first scientists of astronomy. They were good at interpreting dreams. Well, one question I ask myself as I'm looking at this is, does this word magi appear anywhere else in the Bible? And the answer is yes, it appears a couple of times in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, to refer to one guy. On the Isle of Cyprus, when Paul was there preaching, they ran into a dude named Bar-Jesus, or Elumas, who was considered a sorcerer. And that word sorcerer is this word magi, the Greek word for magi. He's not seen in a very good light. In fact, Paul actually turns his lights out and he strikes him blind um, because he ends up uh, being cantankerous there with Paul. So then is there any place in the Old Testament? Well, remember the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So in order to find the Greek word, we have to turn to the Septuagint. And that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And we find in the Septuagint, eight occurrences of the word magi. They are all in the book of Daniel. Now you'll remember that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were hauled off from Judah and taken over to Babylon and they were taught all the Babylonian literature and wisdom and then they were added to the court of Nebuchadnezzar and they were his advisors. And there was this long list of little advisors, you know, astrologers and, 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 and what were they called? I don't remember. Uh, I have to look at my notes. Magicians and enchanters and astrologers and, and all these folks who were there to advise Nebuchadnezzar 
on the things going on in his kingdom. And Daniel and his buddies were added to this group. You'll remember, perhaps, that in chapter 5 of the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, who had never found anybody like these guys, Daniel and his friends, King Nebuchadnezzar, the text says, made Daniel chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. And though the practices of this group were actually forbidden by the law of Moses, Daniel and his friends brought into this pagan context light from the Lord. Daniel is actually given during his time in Babylon a vision of the coming Messiah. And you can read about that sometime in Daniel chapter 9, but he writes it down. He writes down this vision of the coming Messiah. And so we might assume, because Daniel was the chief of these guys, that his teachings, his, his vision, his prophecies, his accumulated knowledge would be part of the accumulated knowledge of the Babylonian court. And it's not unreasonable to think that there could have been a group of magi through the generations that were aware of the teachings and even the teachings of Daniel. And as they looked at the stars and they saw a star that indicated a king in Israel is born, that they would put the two together and they would go off. And they do, and they go off on a search and worship mission. Now they find him in a house, not a stable. I'm really sorry if that messes up your nativity set. They are actually not named in the scripture. I'm really sorry if that messes up a song. They're actually not even numbered in the scripture, and I know that messes up a song. Sorry. They're just identified as the Magi who come from the East and they have three gifts. And we all know those three gifts. The first one is gold, absolutely. Now gold is the most precious metal mentioned in the Bible and it's also the most often metal mentioned in the Bible. And it's the tribute given to kings and it's most often seen in crowns there's one story I was reading uh, as I was studying for this that David defeated a king and took his crown from his head. That thing weighed 75 pounds. Can you imagine a 75-pound gold crown? I don't know that you wear that every day, but anyway, it's used in crowns. It's used to adorn the tabernacle and the temple. Gold was a precious gift befit a king, and that's exactly what these guys are doing when they are paying tribute, paying homage to the new king of Israel. The second gift, gold and frankincense. Now, frankincense is used as one of the major ingredients in a special incense concoction used by only the priests. There is this special mixture of frankincense and a couple other things that are used in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement when they go into the, before the Ark of the Covenant. That special incense is used on that day. But that special incense is also burned on the altar of incense in the holy place and it's also put on the special table of showbread or the bread of the presence. And so it's used primarily and actually, according to Exodus 30, only by the priests. If anyone else uses this mixture of incense, they're actually supposed to be destroyed. They're supposed to be killed. This gift was extremely valuable and it points to the, 
priestly nature of Jesus's mission. So we've got gold, we've got frankincense, and we've got myrrh. Now myrrh was used in a recipe for holy anointing oil. It was used to set apart the tabernacle itself and its instruments as well as the priesthood, Aaron and his sons and the priests. But it's also used in the book of Esther as a beauty treatments. Any of you use oil of myrrh this morning for beauty treatment? Esther was doused in an oil of myrrh, oil of myrrh treatments for six months in her preparation for the king. It's also used later when Jesus is hanging on a cross. Somebody offers him in the book of Mark wine mixed with myrrh as a painkiller. And then Nicodemus brings a 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to embalm Jesus' body at his burial in John chapter 19. This gift seems likely to symbolize the future death of this newly born king of the Jews. So these magi, they were pagans who looked to the stars and were given insight into the birth of Jesus by God using what they knew to point him to himself, the magi. Now the second person I want to talk a little bit about is Herod. Now Herod the Great was a ruthless dude. He was extremely ruthless. He was Jewish by virtue of being the son of Jewish converts he was appointed as king by the Romans and his appointment was couched in political intrigue and various paranoid assassinations. He killed a young high priest because he was popular and he did a good job uh, at a feast of Pentecost. They were at, he invited this high priest to his house one day and they were having fun in the swimming pool and he was playfully dunking him under the water until he drowned. Nice guy, that Herod. In fact, two of his other sons, um, before they could usurp his throne, they were executed in Rome. And then five days before he himself died, he ordered another of his sons to be killed. He was ruthless with his family and anyone that stood in the way of his power. In fact, he goes on a search and destroy mission later when he finds out that the, the Magi had skunked him. They had gone home another way and he orders all of the baby boys in Bethlehem to be killed. He holds on to his power, he thinks. So we've got the Magi and we've got King Herod and then we also have this group of chief priests and teachers of the law. Now the priesthood had become a highly politicized position from before Herod's grandparents even, before the Roman occupation. The teachers of the law were indeed called lawyers sometimes because they were experts in the law of Israel, both in the scripture and the growing rabbinic tradition. You'll notice when we read the text that they know exactly how to answer the question. The question is asked, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And they answer right away. But there's no indication that they go in search of the Messiah as a result of the visit of the Magi. They are able to roll together Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2 to identify the place where the king should be born and the kind of king that he would be, a shepherd for the people Israel. They know the prophecies, but they go on no search, no mission. 
Now let's stop here for just a moment. We just talked about three people or groups of people. They're all coming to this moment from different contexts and different beliefs and each with a different focus. The Magi traveled hundreds of miles in search of a new king. They had read about, they had heard about, they saw a star, they wanted to find him and worship him. Herod, well, Herod does whatever he can do to grasp onto his power. As far as he's concerned, no one was going to be king but him. And this religious group, well, they knew the right answers, but it, it didn't find its way to their feet. Beware. Beware. It's possible to know something and not let it affect your heart. To know something and it result in no search, no submission to the heart, your, of your heart to the king. When I was in college, I was part of an equipping time to go calling on folks from the church, a church that I was part of, and I was teamed up with this deacon, and we got into his car, and before he started his car, he turned to me and said, you got any dynamite? I said, well, no, I don't typically carry dynamite, especially when calling on church folk, you know. Uh, I don't usually call di uh, carry dynamite. And he asked me again, you got any dynamite? You see, I can do more with one kid with dynamite than I can do with seven PhDs. I think what he was talking about is the reality that it's possible to know something but not let it affect you. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not against education. I would not have spent decades finishing up a doctor doctorate if I didn't think education was important. It is, but if you know the teachings of Jesus but you don't obey the teachings of Jesus, you've completely missed the point of the teachings of Jesus. You've completely missed the point of the Great Commission where Jesus said, make disciples who obey everything I've commanded you. Think of all the different places and circumstances where people met Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were all fishing or fixing to when Jesus came along and said, follow me. And they did. Or Matthew, the tax collector, sitting in his tax collecting booth. And Jesus walks by and says, follow me. And he does. He leaves the booth and follows him. Or the Samaritan woman. Jesus is sitting at the well there at noontime when she comes up. And if you were to ask her, you might hear from her that it seemed to her like he, he was just sitting there waiting for me. He told me everything about myself. And she ran off and told all the people in her hometown, and they come to find Jesus. Or think of Bartimaeus sitting on the road near Jericho, and, and people are walking by, and he says, who is it? And there's Jesus saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he screams. Jesus calls him over and heals him. Or the man filled with demons on the garrison side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus pulls up in the boat, and the guys are, what have you got to do with us, Jesus? And Jesus releases him from the demons. And the man desperately wants to hop in the boat with Jesus, and Jesus says, no. Go home to your family and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he does. And he does, each in a unique context, each in unique circumstances, each touched in some way by Jesus. Those who are able to see with faith 
were cleansed and responded to Jesus. Each of these journeys was fraught with obstacles and roadblocks and detours. Think of it, fishing business, tax collecting, the shunning of the people of their town, blindness, thousands of demons, roadblocks, keeping them from Jesus. But Jesus is a seeking Messiah. The God of the heavens came in the flesh and sought them out and us too. He made the longest journey, this seeker, Jesus. He's really the center person of the story, the long-awaited Messiah. Got to ask, where are you in your journey? Especially this Christmas, when there's so much screaming for attention, there are so many roadblocks and detours and flashy things calling for attention. Is it possible to see Jesus in the midst of such an encumbered context? Is it possible that the real Grinch who wants to stop Christmas from coming in your heart, Satan, has worked hard to get us to focus on the gifts the shopping, the lists, so much so that we've actually missed the significance of the coming Savior who is our eternal high priest and king? Is it possible that we have become so distracted by all the glitz and glamour of all the buying options that we've become entranced to think that the gifts that we get or the gifts that we give rather than Jesus has what really, what Jesus really has bought us is most important? I wonder, I wonder. So now with this as a background, with the thinking of the Magi and Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, let's read Matthew chapter two, verses one to 12 together. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return 
to Herod. Saw an advertisement the other day that TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Home Goods promises more joy for the money. They're talking about gifts, by the way. In that equation, gifts equals joy. Right? Material equals joy. By the way, that's a fable. It's just marketing. When you think about it, what will the significance be, really, of more gifts? When our kids were small, like little bitty, there were times that they played more with the box and the bubble wrap than the gift inside. Ever happened to anybody else? The kids played more with the container. They were enthralled with the container, more so than the gift. Interesting. Is it possible that we have become enchanted with containers, gifts, that will actually end up on a shelf or in the closet somewhere six months afterwards? rather than the gift, Jesus? This year, I wonder, what, what would it be like to give more by actually buying less? What would it look like? What if, what if we made this year more about searching after the Messiah, priest, king, Jesus, more than the list? What if we read as families every night the birth narrative each night of the month? watching for this new coming of Jesus. What if you were to write a letter by hand as a gift expressing your love in your heart to your spouse or your kids or your parents or your siblings? You could frame it. You could make it a thing. You could put it on the wall. Or get artsy-craftsy. You know, make something with your hands an expression of your heart to them. Hey, get a paint-by-number set if you need to, right? Give something that you made. Remember whose birthday it is. Today happens to be the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is that four-Sunday period prior to Christmas when we focus on waiting for Jesus' birth and anticipate his return, that true seeker who journeyed from heaven to earth on a search and save mission to set all creation right. So I have to ask about our journey again. Where are you in this story? On your journey through life, what have you done with Jesus? You say you believe him, but you really have no curiosity. Just like the scribes who told the wise men where they could find the Messiah, but would not take one step toward Bethlehem. That's religious negligence. No curiosity, no relationship, no seeking Jesus. Are you like Herod, unwilling to submit to King Jesus, to be obedient to him? No one will rule your kingdom but you. Supposedly asking questions to find him, but all the while sneering, wishing that he'd just leave you alone. Or are you like the wise men, who saw the star, left their homes, went hundreds of miles to look for the Messiah. They didn't stop in Jerusalem where they expected him to be, but they continued on to Bethlehem. And when they found him, they bowed their knees in worship. Are you actively engaging in a daily search for Jesus, drawing close to the Messiah, seeking to worship him alone, 
What have you done with Jesus? Well, this season, this season, as we walk past the doors of the stores down the block, beckoning we come join others buying their stock, recall the Savior, priest, king born in a stable who questions the material is joy, fable. He bids us to seek him and follow him as Lord, to be his disciples living in one accord, say no to the Grinch who'd stop Christmas from coming by celebrating Emmanuel, God with us, triumphing. And find in him alone what you can't in the mall. True joy, true hope, and true grace for all. Hey, it's Matt Zola again. That was a powerful message we just heard. I pray that what we have learned today wouldn't just be stored in our minds, but would move into our hearts and help us to be conformed into the image of God's Son, Jesus. And I pray that that message helped you become a better follower of Jesus and taught you how to love, live, and lead like Jesus. If you want to talk with somebody about something you just heard or you want prayer for something going on in your life, there's somebody on staff who would love to connect with you. Why don't you email us at office at ferncreekcc.org and we want to put a name to your face. We want to know your story and we want to connect with you in person if we can. Again, that's office at ferncreekcc.org. You know, one of the things we value at Fern Creek Christian Church is being a part of community. If you've been listening to our sermons online or you've been watching our services on YouTube or Facebook, why don't you come visit us in person one Sunday? We would love to get to know who you are, and we believe that we grow better as followers of Jesus in community and not in isolation. You know, God gives us community as a gift. We have services every Sunday morning, 845, 10, and 1115, and we hope that you'll feel welcomed enough to be able to join us and worship with us in person. Thanks for tuning in today. Grace, peace, bless others this week.